and welcome everyone to part six of the Anderson Countdown. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and this week we are discussing Wes Anderson's first foray into stop-motion animation, his adaptation of the Roald Dahl story, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my Countdown co-hosts, Scott Harvey and Jay Habib. Scott, you first. How are things going? Things are good. Um, yeah, I, I uh, was joking beforehand. Hey, it's two episodes in a week. We were obviously uh, had a lot of fun last time about um, the fact that, um, you know, we were pretending like it had been a week when actually it had been a year. Um, but this time it actually has been a week. Uh, no, no joking. Um, it has been we a promise week. It's we're, true. We're getting another episode in. Um, and Hold yeah, the newspaper it was fun. up, Scott. Hold today's newspaper up. Yeah, <laughs> I should. Yeah, uh, it's not a hostage situation though. But um, but anyway, um, I uh, it was fun to revisit this film. This was definitely one before we started the series that I was highlighting as I'm going to be interested to to see what I think of that one because it's been a long time since I've seen it. And Jay, how are you doing? Pretty good, Scott. I think since we're back on a regular cadence, it's okay to date ourselves a little bit. Um, Ted Lasso returned this morning, technically last night. I have to make that qualifier because we sat down to watch it. And then about 45 seconds in, a cockroach, like the size of, I don't know, two to three fingers. Like it was a big boy. Just flew in or just flew from somewhere like behind me to like right above the TV. And it took, you know, a solid 20 minutes to catch it because um, he was a feisty one. You had a full day. You watched Ted Lasso. You watched this film. Any, anything else you, you squeezed in before the recording? I was going to squeeze in John Wick 2 after, um, but I don't think I, you know, we're starting a little later than intended, but I'll still finish them, the, the remaining two before John Wick 4. Yeah. Let chats to Helsky cook. That's what I say. Because um, oh, yeah. we, are, we are recording this on the eve, a week before John Wick Chapter 4 blackout i don't know i saw some random poster today that had had like a had a sub a subtitle for the film sort of like chapter three did with parabellum um but i i don't see any like any further yeah. advertisement on that being actually like that being the subtitle of the film it's just a random poster that i saw today on letterboxd like one of the like the change posters features mm -hmm. find random and there's one that says blackout on it i'm like that's not been advertised at all <laughs> there's i don't know yeah, i don't think i've seen that as a as a title anywhere <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, at, at the time of you listening to this podcast, rewind two months and listen to our John Wick chapter four review. Right. Um, but today, the focus of the conversation will be the 2009 stop motion animated comedy drama, Fantastic Mr. Fox, adapted from the Roald Dahl children's novel of the same name by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach and directed by Anderson. The film follows the titular Mr. Fox, voiced by George Clooney, as his spree of thefts results in his family and later his community being hunted down by three farmers known as Bogus, Bunce, and Bean, voiced by Robin Hurlstone, Hugo Guinness, and Michael Gambon, respectively. For a time, Mr. Fox had given up his life of thieving and had started a family with Mrs. Fox, voiced by Meryl Streep, and they had a son, Ash, voiced by recurring uh, Anderson regular at this point, Jason Schwartzman. But the life of thieving and bad decisions beckoned him back from his new life as a newspaper columnist after ignoring the pleas of his lawyer, Clive Badger, voiced by Bill Murray, and moving his family into a better but more dangerous home inside a tree in close proximity to the three farms of Bogus, Bunce, and Bean. Soon after the foxes move in, things unravel, and Mr. Fox will have to find his way to extricate himself once again from the life of thieving he finds himself in. And with that, Jay, let's go to you first. What did you make of Fantastic Mr. Fox? Did you find Anderson's particular filmmaking sensibilities matched well with the children's book source material? Or did you find Anderson's first endeavor into stop motion animation a weird and ineffective mix of ingredients? It's funny that you bring up the source material. I can't remember if we were on air or off when I was mentioning it. I remember this being one of my favorite books as a child. And I joked, like, should I go read it? Uh, I ultimately did not. Uh, I think that was... I think I'm happy with that call. Uh, and then I might go back and like read it tonight once we're done discussing it, just for fun. But I thought it worked really well. It, it started and like no spoiler, like ended very much like a West movie in terms of like the, the campy music that was playing. I was like, oh yeah. And you know, kind of the rest of it, you know, you, 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 you could poke at some of the, some of the themes that he carries over, like, you know, 
difficult family dynamics, for example. I mean, that's the one that probably sticks out the most, but I thought he, he kind of wove some of that stuff that we've seen in his early, in his early, like, you know, older movies well into, you know, like, I, you know, I, I don't think if I, I don't think I would necessarily would have guessed that this was a children's book before. So I think the, the weaving of the two parties was like seamless. Uh, and ultimately a really fun time. And, you know, I think Scott Harvey was talking last week about how can you, it, it, you'd have to really try to like piss me off in under 90 minutes or like, you know, bore me in under nine minutes. I forget what the exact wording was. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, you take a lot of that emotional punch that we've seen in some of the West, the earlier West movies, condense it down to 90 minutes, you know, use this, cool animation style and just something we haven't seen Wes do before. And I, I still think it works pretty well. Like I, I would say it works really well. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. Scott, what about you? You're revisiting this film for the first time since you saw it in theaters, I think you said, and it was mm -hmm. a film that you didn't entirely connect with on that first viewing way back in the day, maybe for a variety of reasons. Was the experience different this time? Yeah. Well, for context, yes, I did see this movie in theaters back in 2009. Um, I had never seen a Wes Anderson film before. I was 14 years old. So, you know, I it's was just sort of... you hadn't seen a Wes Anderson film by 14 years old. I, don't I know what you yeah. were doing. Um, yeah. But uh, I bring that up to say, you know, my, my brain was still adjusting to different types of movies. And, I, you know, I was just sort of starting to expose myself to, sure. um, you know, a, a lot of different types of movies. And so this was a lot to take in. I didn't really know anything about Wes Anderson going in. I didn't know the type of, you know, style, heavily stylized filmmaking that he is known for. And so you can imagine sort of my shock at going in to see what I, you know, believe to be just like an animated heist movie types, you know, situation. Yeah, and, children, children's film. Yeah, frankly. immediately being hit yeah. with, uh, you know, the, the Wes Anderson stuff uh, and, you know, ultimately feeling like this is not a children's film. Um, I mean, I think kids can watch it and, and take enough from it, but like the dialogue is not written for children, in my opinion, for the most part. But what the cuss um, are you talking about? Yeah, well, yeah, except for that. For except for that stuff, yeah. yeah, but um, but anyway, uh, so but this film is heavily praised. You know, I I had a feeling that I was going to change my tune when I finally came to it. Now with you know m more years of experience under my belt, safe to say, um, and I definitely enjoy this film a lot this time around. Um, and, and honestly, you know, despite my earlier thoughts, I think it's actually one of his more most approachable films for sure. Um, you know, the the animated, yeah. the animation helps. And then I think the ideas about family are maybe a little more, you know, simplistic. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but a little more straightforward than in, you know, films like The Royal Tenenbaums, for example. There's not a um, ton of nuance in the family yeah. and like the themes that it's exploring, I'd say. Not, and that's not a criticism either. It's, it's very, yeah. it is, it is very simple in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are plenty of likable characters in the movie where, again, as opposed to some of, you know, the other films like The Royal Tenenbaums or whatever, it's like, well, these people are all kind of miserable. Um, August Bunsen Bean, I mean, love him. Well, Goats. that's obviously not what I mean, but I know. you know, I know Meryl Streep as uh, you know Mrs. Fox, and then the uh, Christofferson is a great character. Uh, you know, sure. I think the lawyer is a great character. Um, you know, he probably doesn't do as much with the ensemble as he could because it's only an eighty-minute film. You know, Wes Anderson's movies—they have these huge ensembles. They have, you know, they try to integrate a lot of characters. Often, that's maybe one downside of the movie is because it is so quick. Um, he maybe doesn't have time to do the ensemble stuff as successfully as he has in other films. But, um, you know, I think it, it turns into a nice sort of, you know, it's a family story about this, you know, kind of nuclear family unit with the, the foxes, but also, you know, he kind of discovers this extended family by the end too, with, you know, the, the lawyer and his family and his best friend, I forget what his name is, but, um, that character and you know just all the other characters all the other animals who end up in their orbit because of you know the situation that that happens but um so uh, yeah you're talking, about, honestly, you're talking about kylie is that who you're talking kylie, about kylie yes kylie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um and then you know honestly one of the most heavy criticisms of um wes anderson's films are that you know they aren't they are just like technical exercises right like there's nothing they're cold. There's nothing emotional you can take away from them. 
Um, I definitely don't feel that way about this movie, and I would defy anyone to watch the last scene in particular and to not um, feel like that is emotionally resonant because I think it's it's great. And and you know we'll get to it, but I now understand why when White Noise was coming out, everyone was saying, "Well, Noah Baumbach just copied his ending from Fantastic Mr. Fox for White Noise," uh, because he kind of did. I think it's great in both instances, but um, a lot of similarities it's probably a bit here. higher production value in White Noise than in yes, I think that's film, but that's safe to say. Obviously, he used a pre-existing song as well um, in this sure. film and had an original song in White Noise. It's it's different enough to where both justify their existence, but um, it was funny to go back and see this, you know, so soon after seeing White Noise. And yeah, I think, you know, I think um, talking about Bombeck, I think him and Wes Anderson, just their styles work so perfectly together. They complement each other. This is the second film, obviously, that they've collaborated on. Uh, Steve Zizou being the other one. I wish they would do another collab. I think it would be great. Um, I think their sensibilities are really similar, but... Um, definitely, I think the dialogue has an extra snap to it because Bombback is involved. So, yeah, really great movie. Um, I, I feel I'm like not going to say I was interested in making like truly more adult films at the like very much more adult focused yeah. oriented films at this point. That's probably true, but yeah. um, I mean, you know, The Life Aquatic was an adult film. I'm not saying they have to do another animated film, but um, but anyway. Um, but I'm saying I feel I feel like. Uh, Bombach's not as interested as making like a four quadrant film where as, as weird as West films as West's films are, I feel like typically they're, he's trying to appeal to a general audience. And I'm not sure Bombach yeah, is, but really fair. anyway, uh, I just think it would be fun if they collab again. I'm not going to, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I think it would be fun if they did. Um, it's a great movie. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, like I said, I do think it is one of his more approachable films. I'm not going to say that I was missing something all those years ago because I think it was just, uh, my brain was scrambled for obvious reasons but I'm happy I came back to it now and I'm happy that I'm closer to the consensus on this movie. Maybe I, it's not my favorite, obviously that we've watched so far. It's not going to be my favorite in the end either. Again, knowing what's to come, but um, a great movie. Yeah. It only took you 14 years or 84 yeah. Fox years to realize it. So, you know, it's only a, a few lifetimes that it took. At least for Mr. Fox. Unclear. These these foxes don't live very long is, is the vibe I'm getting, by the way, from from the film. You think? Well, I mean, you know, there's farmers out there hunting them, so that's true. Yeah, I mean it's but it's only it's only been like two years or whatever. And uh, you know, Ash is all grown up. I don't know. Didn't seem like he was that old. Anyway, that's beside the point. I yeah, I really I love this film. I think like the the West Something about the West vibe, and I feel like this is a very different vibe than what we've gotten in any in any of his films so far. Like this is much more where I feel like you see him start to step back and say, "I want to make these sort of more almost to the point I was making just a second ago, like more general, generally appealing films." Again, I think his sensibilities and the way he makes movies are such that it won't appeal to everyone. But I feel like the content of the film and the themes he's trying to explore, I think he tries, he's really tried to open it up a little bit more to like make it more of an accessible film. And I think that's a trend that you start to see with him over the next few movies, not to not to spoil or tip my own opinion about his trajectory too much. But I think this is something that, you know, he sort of tapped into a little bit more in the second half of his of his sort of filmmaking career so far. And I think it honestly, I was surprised by how exactly how much I liked this movie. I think the animation works really well. It's a, I think it's a bit jarring at first to watch. Um, I think that's true in general of stop motion animation, but especially the way Wes does it. Um, especially not just the actual figures themselves that are being animated, but also the camera angles he chooses to use. I think it's very, it's very, you know, looking into the camera and speaking a lot of the time. It almost feels like, because I know this is literally the case how this works, I understand, but it feels very like it's a diorama, very much like a diorama, um, which I understand is how it's how it, how stop motion animation is often made. But it feels like he's especially leaned into that and, and not trying to obfuscate that. Whereas, like, I think there's plenty of stop motion animated films that sort of belie that a little bit or, or take a different tack with the way they present. It's definitely in stark contrast to the last film we talked about, The Darjeeling Limited, where, where we talked about, you know, that it was much less of those sort of um, visual 
tricks that Wes is known for, except for the, like, you know, when they're panning through the train or something like that. Sure. Yeah, Whereas here, it's West. just, he's opening the, opening the bag of tricks. Exactly. Know, yeah. Open. Yeah. And in, in some ways, again, I, I it's going to come off as a negative, but like, it doesn't feel very cinematic um, for that reason. But I think that almost works in the favor of the material in a way, because I think he wants to boil down this story. He wants it to be right in your face. He wants you to see everything that's happening in the way that he's presenting it. And he's, he's not trying to do, he's trying to do tricks, but not tricks in a way to like hide things or make things like complicated or nuanced. He wants to make things very obvious, I think. And I think that really works for the source material. I wasn't familiar and haven't read the, 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 the Roald Dahl novel. Um, didn't really read Novel's any. probably not the right word, right? It's a children's book. Children's novel. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they can be novels. What are they, a novella? Like, I don't know what they mean. <laughs> I mean, I'm picturing like a, you know, Dr. Seuss style, but like, I don't really know. What... It's not quite that small, I don't okay. think. Uh, okay. It's 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 like, it's printed like a small book, not yeah, like it's, it's the not a big, zine. That's you know, not a zine you pick up on the side type. of the street. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. I just, yeah, it's, I was thinking of Jane Eyre, you know, when you say novel. But... Sure, sure. Yeah, the great, the great American novel or whatever. You're thinking of like a, Faulkner or something or Hemingway. <laughs> um, no, yeah. So I, I I thought that it worked really well. It's just the film is just very charming. I just find everything about the film and the performances to be just really endearing, really charming. I think it, that in that way it matches what you'd expect from the source material being a children's book. I think it sort of matches those expectations. But at the same time, I think if you watch the movie, at least the the tone that he's able to strike in the film, although still charming, I think does also, also come off as more serious and more dire than I expect the source material reads. Jay, I don't know. I'll look to you to confirm that or not. Like it comes off as fairly dark, a fairly dark film at times. And it's dealing with like, you know, these sort of adult anxieties about like, sure. you know, Oh, the dad, you know, he had this, this certain lifestyle before, but now that he's had children, you know, he has to settle down and into a more, uh, you know, pragmatic lifestyle less dangerous lifestyle yeah. because he has a family to provide for and everything i mean that's not something that you know is targeted at kids obviously well i guess is it read similarly not quite as dark but again i was like 11 when i read this and was like this is so cool was so, there a rabid dog like biting people in 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 the children's book i I don't remember. I mean, I also like I can't. I can't really speak to details. My guess, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a dog. Whether sure. you know, I, I, I'd be shocked if you know they mentioned the rabies explicitly and were like, you know, yeah, yeah like you know, releasing the dog. Maybe they did. I I don't. This is why I feel like I should have. Maybe I should have read it after the movie and before we recorded. But well, that's my bad. It's all good. It's not a big deal. Just I, I feel like the, the there's some adaptive decisions that are made that make it decidedly less G. I think it's fair to say. Um, G as in G rated. You're not saying G as in you know good. And this I'll, is the I'll, year I'll, like 2012. I'll, I'll let you decide what you think <laughs> I'm referring to when I say G rated in the context of a children's book. Um, I'll, I'll let the audience figure that one out. I'm just having fun with you. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, yeah, G rated for sure. I yeah I don't know I just found I just yeah going back to the previous point I just found it really charming even though it was able to sort of balance that charm and that wit with you know darker subject matter at times it always feels like it just it's just one of those things where like you're watching the film you're like Wes Anderson has made this movie like it's just so clear in my mind that this style can really only be balanced or struck by him and I can't even quite put my finger on exactly what it is other than it is this weird amalgamation mixture of wit charm humor and you know a little bit of weirdness all mixed all mixed together a little bit of darkness as well and it works really well for this you know i'm not familiar with the source material like i said but i do think that it was all those sort of adaptive decisions that were made they worked and i thought just out of segue topics here a little bit i thought george clooney was an excellent mr fox i think that he really you know it's probably that that point of his career where he sort of is at you know, near the peak or just past the peak of his powers and the sort of level of gravitas and, you know, charisma that he's able to bring to that Mr. Fox. So like, he, like he's such a slow, I mean, if you just sort of associate him with, I think the ocean franchise at this point in his career, you know, this is 2009, he's made oceans 11 and oceans 12. I don't think, I don't know if oceans 13 had come out yet, Scott, you'll have to check me on that. 
did. Uh, yeah. It had. Okay, yeah. So he made those three Oceans movies, and I think that sort of coming off of that, it's he sort of slides very comfortably into this role of being, you know, I guess pun intended here, but like a sly, a sly fox, and I think that his sort of vocal, like his vocal charm, his vocal chemistry, frankly, with other characters, especially when you look at Mrs. Fox, who's voiced by Meryl Streep and Kylie, who I believe I forget the actor's name. His name is um, Wallace Wolodarski. Yeah, yeah, he's been another a truly legendary, a truly legendary name. Um, I I think that he really is a like he's the smooth talker. Like you can kind of understand why everyone likes him and it sort of endears him to people and it lets him get away with maybe more stuff than he would otherwise, especially with a character like Kylie, who's like technically his like superintendent, I think, or like the owner of the tree that he's moved into. Um, but then they just become like bros and like rob a bunch of houses together, like real, mm-hmm. real cool stuff. Uh, I need to text my landlord about doing that. And I don't know. I, I loved, I loved the character and what he did with it. I don't know if you guys agree, Scott, maybe we'll swing back around to you first and what you thought about George Clooney. Yeah, he's great. Um, you know, he, he brings his movie star persona as much as you can to a animated character. I think, uh, you know, I think with, with movies like this, you just need, people who can deliver the dialogue in a particularly musical way for lack of a better word. Cause it is that, you know, quick clipped dialogue, you know, there's, it has a sharp wit yeah. to it. It, if it's not delivered in the, in the particular way then it's not going to sound right. I mean, it's one of the reasons that Wes Anderson uses so many of the same actors. Cause like he has his people, right. Who he knows he's going to, you know, he's going to get the the best out of, out of that dialogue from. Um, and I think, you know, George Clooney wasn't one of those people. I mean, they've never worked together other than in this movie, um, which again is a shame because I would love to see what he could do in you know a, a live action um, West movie. Um, West does branch still- out a lot more his you know two animated features that he has. I feel because like, you have people like you know Brian Cranston is the lead in Isle of Dogs. Like he has these, like all these random people mm-hmm. that he seems to tap into in these animated movies. Greta Gerwig is in there. Um, sure, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Clooney, he's just I can't believe that's, here. sorry, just, uh, I can't believe that's the role you call out from Isle of Dogs. Of all the roles <laughs> you could have mentioned in Isle of Dogs, you call out Greta Gerwig. But I, I'm mentioning somebody who's not in any of these other films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, 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 I'm sure we'll have some discourse on that when we get there. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, George Clooney's great. Like, this is, you know, obviously it, it wouldn't be this anyway, but, like, you know, you think oh, you know, George Clooney casting a big name in this movie or whatever, like he's just he's just there for the name or whatever. It's it's not that. I, I mean, again, that's that'd be kind of a stupid thing to say in the first place because he's an animated movie and he's just doing a voice for it. But, um, you know, if that's an opinion out there, like he, he's he's fully committed. He, it doesn't hurt he, to he put gets... George Clooney's name on your poster, though, or to advertise with it. I will sure, say that. Sure. Yeah. And Meryl Streep as well. But he sure. gets yeah. the rhythms of the dialogue perfect which i think is is what's necessary for this character and you know even like the knowledge that it is george clooney like adds a little something right because um you know this character is supposed to be kind of a wild animal right as he you know um as he refers to himself as multiple times in the movie and you know for at least some period of time that was kind of george clooney's public persona in a way you know he was he was something of a uh, a sex symbol and, um, you know, had all this uh, that he was talking about. Oh, I'm never going to settle down. I'm never going to marry. You know, that was like a whole thing with him. Obviously, he is married now. But um, so I think it adds a little something extra when you know that that's George Clooney. Like, you know, it makes it more believable to a certain extent. Sure. Jay, anything to add there? Not a whole lot. I think we covered it pretty well. But to me as I'm sure is the case with you guys and many others, his voice is super recognizable. Uh, you know, in that sense, like uh, I'm not saying it's distracting or anything. It's more just like, I recognize his voice and it is like, you know, pretty smooth and he's hitting the beats pretty well. So like it, yeah, you know, I'm not going to say it like necessarily helped or hurt that he is the big name that he is. Uh, but he definitely did a really good job. So well, it's kind of funny because he's probably he probably would be considered more famous at the time the film was made than he is now because well like he's not doing that much these days I feel like well like, he's, he's Batman what are you talking about yeah right um, like three months but sure 
Yeah, a, a very hot second, I guess he was Batman. But I, I feel like good uh, movie. Sure. Um, no, sorry, I'm talking about the fact that he's going to play Batman in like three months. Sure. You could tell me anyone's going to play Batman in three months, and I believe you at this point. Um. Anyway, whether or not every Batman known to man will be returning in the Flash or not, I think uh, separately, he. I think to, to Scott's point that I was making just a few minutes ago, I, I think that there is a real lyr- lyrical nature, a real lyricism to the way the film's written. And, you know, Clo- Clooney is really able to adapt and, and slide into that tempo and that um, sort of that meter almost of, of, the, of the text of the film. And I think probably that's what makes the biggest difference. And whether he's a famous name or not, or a fam- recognizable voice, you know, I think that's going to matter a lot to the studio and to marketing the film. But what was important, and I think the Skype one was most important, is that he was able to he was able to do the work. And you know, Wes wasn't going to cast someone who wasn't able to do that. And I think that we kind of see the evidence of that. I think one of the really impactful parts of his performance, I briefly mentioned it, is just how I think how he interacts with a lot of the other characters. I think is it Felicity Fox, Mrs. Fox, uh, is is definitely one of them. And I think Meryl Streep is obviously a really game companion. And like vocally to him because a an extremely recognizable voice as well to sort of compliment or to sort of stand opposite to this very recognizable voice with Mr. Fox as well. And then also um, I think probably his son as well, Ash played by, although not a super famous person, but a West regular for anyone who is a West fan watching this film would certainly recognize the voice of Jason Schwartzman. And I think that the sort of chemistry and the, and the arc that he goes through with both of those characters Ultimately, I think it's kind of what, what hooked me in the film. I know there's the heist elements as well. I think those are like kind of, they felt those, those heisty elements felt kind of basic to me. It didn't feel like anything fancy or complicated. It was entertaining enough, but I think I really got invested in in what this relationship sort of set with um, and, and arced toward over time between the sort of nuclear family unit of the three of them. Obviously, there's other characters that sort of interject as well, like Christopherson Silverfox, who I want to talk about in a minute. Um, is obviously sort of temporarily or pseudo becomes part of their family for a large portion of the film. And once they're sort of reunited with the entire name, like, I don't know, community, Bill Murray's Clive Badger, you know, plays a role also, but I think I really got locked in on the, on the sort of family unit. And in some ways I was kind of disappointed because it felt like Mrs. Fox isn't really a character in this film for the first half of the movie. It feels like she's kind of absent. Maybe she's on screen, but she's not really a character. It's not until a lot of the, you know, the three farmers really sort of start to assault their home where she becomes more of a character. And I think that in that respect, the film almost picked up a little bit in the second half for me, because that was something that I really, I sort of really keyed in on and and was a fan of. Jay, we'll swing to you first this time. How did you feel about sort of the relationships and these performances by Meryl Streep and Jason Schwartzman and how they sort of played off of George Clooney? I thought they played off of him well. I don't think I gave as much thought to Felicity Fox not being as much of a prominent character, at least in the first half. It felt like, yeah, I mean, maybe just the story didn't require it as yeah. much. And like, and that's her. you know, that it's neither here nor there. But it's you know more he he is like sneaking out behind her back uh, as he starts doing the heist, right? And it's not sure. until I would say a little bit earlier, like than you did like when he you know gets caught and she's like another dinner party and you know kind of comes out of the shadows like all right i'm i'm still here like you know what are you what are you playing at uh but their dynamic like you said again they they you know you called it chemistry it almost feels a little silly to say that when it's like a voice role but like the vocal chemistry is there that i think they're playing off each other really well and then jason jason schwartzman um yeah, yeah i I thought he was hilarious and like instantly, you know, because of the movies we've been watching, just like instantly recognize his voice. Um, and just I, was... I found his performance to be a lot more, I'll be honest. Like I thought this was one of his most effective performances for me. I'm not as big a fan of Rushmore personally. And I kind of thought he was the, the odd brother out of the three of them in the Darjeeling limited in terms of the characters that I got invested in. But I really felt like he he pulled more weight in this film than I thought, than I expected him to, I guess is what I would say. I thought he was really funny. You know, it was just like kind of a dick to start and, you know, trying totally. to, like, you know, towards his cousin and oh, yeah. trying to prove himself. Just like, really? I, I thought he was perfectly nice. Is that uh-huh. not, is that not normal? Okay. 
That's not how you treat your house guests. I've slept, slept on your couch, man. You never put me under the table. Um, just because I was too tall and like, turn, turn <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have a table. Yeah. That's why I didn't put you under a table. I didn't have one. There you go. Well, remind yeah. me never to stay at your place again. Sure. Because I know you a have a table now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, real quick, ahead. how do y'all interpret that when he turns the train set on? Does he does he do that because he doesn't want to hear him crying? Is that? I I didn't read it that way. Uh, okay. And like maybe maybe I'm just off here. I I read that as like a. He realizes he's being, he's being a little bit mean and this train thing is like a cool thing that they can look at together. So it's yeah. like, it is like stop crying, but it's not like, I don't want to hear you. Cause he also sits down next to him. It's he like, a, Hey, let's, being, let's the train. He continues being obnoxious to him after this. Like he's not so perfect. I, this isn't like a, you know, I don't know. Again, I, I might, I might've just read that wrong, but that is, that is how I, yeah, I, no, two, I think he's a two year old Fox. I don't know what you want from him. It's troll Fox years, but it's not that many years yeah. in reality. No, yeah. okay. I sort of thought it was both. Is it weird to think that it was both? I don't know. Like, I feel like I think there's I felt, multiple interpretations. Yeah. yeah, I felt like he didn't want to hear him cry, and he felt bad about it. And so he, and then I think it sort of it pivots into what Jay's talking yeah. about in terms of like it's this nice thing, but also like I still I still hate you. You're still making my life annoying, but I also feel bad because I'm being a dick, and I don't want to hear you cry because it makes me feel worse. I don't know. I, I sort of interpret it as a mix of both. Yeah, I thought no, that's I what I was that's, saying. That's uh, fair, I don't know. Yeah. I said maybe it didn't come across, but Scott, what did what did you think of of the relationships here? Yeah, they're they're good. Um, Meryl Streep, like you know, it's a familiar presence, which I think again is yeah. is she brings um, a lot essential, of warmth, essential yeah. for the role, right? Yeah, because she is the you know matronly, warm character who you know is gently but you know later on more forcefully scolding her husband for his errant ways um but she's kind of like binding the family together when all of that is going on and so it helps that you have this you know familiar welcome presence um really scratching scratching his face at one point like much more firmly scolding him (laughs) yeah yeah um and then yeah i don't i don't have much more to add about jason schwartzman i think the the dynamic between ash and christopherson is is a lot of fun and you know gets at the movie's point about sort of accepting people's differences um which i think is is good yeah i was a, their their dynamic i think is some of the best some of the best sort of comedy at least i found in the film um between ash and christopherson christopherson i'm believe is played by i was just looking at his name right before this eric chase anderson yes not a name that i immediately recognized if i'm being honest yeah, me either he's um, been in a few west movies before this just as like not like nameless cameo yeah, roles random people i think he's mm-hmm. he's i mean he is related obviously to him but i mean i assume based on the last name that he's they're related in some way um, he's his brother okay yeah there you go so i think i don't know i, I you know nepotism you know here here it is at work live in the flesh um jokes aside i did actually i did like the character a lot i think that one of the things around around this is that i just i just feel like the relationship is so relatable like you you're this sort of only child who really is sort of fawning for the attention of a father who is even though he has reformed his ways is like kind of aloof and you want his approval and you want him to, to sort of acknowledge that, you know, I'm proud of you. It's like, it feels like that is sort of the bend of this character at the beginning. And then he's sort of introduced to this version of himself that his life is a lot harder. Like his father is dying with double pneumonia and he has to go live with these. I don't know how distant the relatives really are, but it doesn't really seem like they know each other that well. Um, and it's sort of thrust into a situation where he's sort of being what he sees in him even is not like the hardship, but um, all the things that he's good at that he wishes he were better at. And I find that to be a pretty effective um, sort of narrative arc for, for that character. And I don't know, the rivalry is, I think there's a lot of charm in that. And um, because at the end of the day, like, you know, it's, there's like some, there's definitely some like not so good natured things that happen between them over the course of, of the film but there's just something about their relationship and the film that makes it feel good natured in a way that you know it never really feels dark and it always feels like a little bit lighthearted. 
when the big moments come, you know, they're in it together, which I think is is important. You know, the maybe the yeah the the moment like the train moment we're talking about, but also you know like later when the 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 Beavers kids are like picking on picking on Ash and Christopherson, you know, steps in and beats Punch the guy up. The yeah, it's like hey, I can fight my own battles or whatever, and he's like, no, you really can't. <laughs> <laughs> good one. Which nice good. joke. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about the Fox family and uh, the associated parties, but we know there's a bunch of villains in this film as well, including three farmers, or specifically, I should say, three farmers, Boggess, Bunce, and Bean. Really great alliteration, A-plus work by Roald Dahl um, in that case. I mentioned it earlier, they're voiced by the trio of Robin Hurlstone, Hugo Guinness, but sort of led by Mr. Bean, who's played by Michael Gambon. Were they effective villains, guys? Like, Jay, we'll go to you first. Villains, yes. Villains, no. What did you think? I'd say villains, yes. It's like a little bit distracting to hear, you know, just overt Dumbledore being like super evil. Uh, that's the same. His land from some foxes, man. What's evil about that? I mean, do you think he takes that a little too far? <laughs> I mean, by the end. He definitely takes it too far. Not yeah, even by the I end, think... by like 30 seconds into trying blowing up the tree or whatever they did. Yeah, no, I mean, it just it just gets ugly. Uh, but I think it's effective, right? Like, I think you're seeing greed on all sides, right? Like, you have Mr. Fox. I feel like that's the more obvious one. Uh, you know, I mean, like, you know, like, and there's some element of like capturing your 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 past life, you're a wild animal, however you want to frame it. But it's ultimately, you know, I don't, the crux of it for me is like what he says, like, you know, I don't want to live in a hole and I want to do something about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for Frank Bean and the other two, you know, I, I don't, they don't really don't need to take it as far as they have. Like if nothing else, like they've made their point, but it's like, no, like, you know, you steal from us. Like we're going to, you know. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because it feels like Boggess and Bunce are like, all right, we're kind of done with this. There's a point in the film where there's like, we've, we've, got, we've taken this as far as we really need to. We don't need to go further. And Bean just sort of pushes them along as this guy who's like, you know, he has to get the last, the last laugh, so to speak, of the situation. And so he takes it further and further and further and further and further and further. Much, I think at some point, you know, against the will of, of his, fellow farmers i don't know if you got that if you felt that the same way but uh yeah perhaps a little bit i, I think as such you know he michael gambit's frank bean is the one that would just like stick out uh even though i think there are some pretty funny moments involving the first two sure like like if, if we could like rewrite this to be like an adult mob movie right like you know you stole from sure. us now we're gonna like hunt you down kill you kill your children kill everyone in your neighborhood you know like it, it like it it's pretty dark stuff. Totally. Uh, effective yeah. again. But it's pretty dark when you when you really stop to think about it. How did you feel about the animal genocide, Scott? Yeah, remember, they are anthropomorphic animals, so we're good. But um I know. I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um but yeah, no, I mean Michael Gambon, it's fine. I, again, I you know, I think the ensemble maybe isn't quite as well rounded as in some of the other um Anderson films just because of the short length of the film. Um, but he's good, you know, he's the dastardly British villain, right? Like, it sounds right, like his voice matched with the character, um, which I think is about all you can ask for with, with this. Yeah, it's, it's obviously, it's weird to say, but it almost feels like the, these characters are very, I think all of these characters, frankly, are very simplistic. It's not just true of the villains. Um, so there's not really much, there's not necessarily a lot of depth in these characters to mine for some of these actors. I mean, frankly, there's not typically villains in Wes Anderson movies. Um, it's usually just, you know, like, you know, main characters or protagonists, whatever you want to call them, sort of working through complex situations in their life. And as we sort of mentioned already, there's this isn't really a complex situation. And all the characters are pretty one dimensional, you know, with a few exceptions. Um, and it's really just about enjoying the ride that the film takes you on. And I think in that sense, these these villains in particular, of course, um, Michael Gambon really takes you on that ride well enough. Um, sort of fills the role he's supposed to fill and does what he's asked of, and not much more. But that's okay. I think that sort of fits the fits the requirements of the film at the same time. 
one of the things that I, because it was we took a year off here guys someone stopped me if this has happened before but this is the first wes anderson film that i feel like really sort of chapterizes its narrative um and and it, very literally in the in the sense of this film because it lays out the different parts of the of the of the story in clear detail and i think that obviously that sort of matches the notion that this is being adapted from a book that i you know whether it had chapters and not it had a very linear arc and 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 is separated out probably in specific parts and um sort of has that sort of sensibility about it i think that's something that fits the sort of vibe of the book very well but it also sort of wanted to, to gut check whether that's something that jay you found maybe distracting because you mentioned there's certain elements of them that you found a bit distracting and i didn't know if maybe the just how formulaic parts of the of the setup were if that contributed to that as well no that wasn't it uh, and I can elaborate. It, it's really not much. I, I'll just go up, start with that. And to me, it's, so there were just a few, we talk about how like stop motion animation can be a little bit jarring to start. And I wouldn't say it was the end, like the, the fact that it was stop motion, but there's just a few shots where you like really notice the details of like, what do foxes have fur? Is that fur like on their face? Just like, yeah. as they're just like kind of standing there listening to stuff. And again, like, you know, that's just, that's just what it is. There's nothing you know, I'm distracted by it, but that's that's like a me problem. I'm not blaming that like on mm -hmm. the style. Let's say Jay's that's saying like, that all foxes should be shaved. No more oh fur. My God, anti fur. Uh, no, I actually really like the chapter style. I thought it uh, made it easy to keep track of again because it's such a short movie too. It just kind of it makes sense. You know, if you have like a, a four hour movie that you divide into six parts and an epilogue, doesn't necessarily work that well. I'm like, what do these chapters even mean? But you know, this 80 you're describing minute... the you're describing Zack Snyder's Justice League, Jay. I, I am describing Zack Snyder's Justice but... League, which I still love, but I think the chapters are kind of uh, pointless in that. Do you, do you like TV shows, Jay? Enterprise are you a fan of TV shows? I, I like TV shows. I think I like them more than you do, Scott. Yeah. Would you would you say that episode breaks would divide you know a, a show into chapters of the story or anything like that? Yeah, but the, but they're written as episodes. They're not written as like a you know a like you know 10 hour movie well, that then they just like divide up into 20 minute segments or 40 minute segments we'll definitely see what jay thinks when we get to the the french dispatch sure, which is yeah. quite literally an anthology film with three separate story well four separate really stories in it so yeah i mean that doesn't inherently sound good or bad but we yeah. were talking about the structure of this film i don't know how we ended up here uh <laughs> i made one joke that that was my fault we took the joke further after you made it, Jay. It's okay. No, it's know. only natural. Yeah, it was on me. I, I There are a few topics I should avoid. This is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even um, know what that means. I don't even know what topic you're talking about avoiding. That's fine. We can move on. Zack Snyder's Justice League. But anyway. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, sure. I mean, I, I brought that up. Everyone <laughs> huh? should avoid that. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, I... No, I thought the chapter the chapters worked. And I think it, it made it easy to, like, you know, go through my thoughts on the film pick out the pieces that I thought that worked, that worked the best. Uh, you know, it was even like a little bit of a gag, right? Like master plan and then master plan B or like, you know, new master, like whatever it was. Yeah. And then later it was master plan B. Um, so like, I, I, I thought it was, there wasn't too much to it, but like it was effective. Sure. Yeah, no, he definitely worked some jokes into, you know, the different chapter titles, so to speak. And I think that overall it definitely structures the narrative nicely. Scott, is it something that you appreciated as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, there's there there um, are times in the story where time is passing. Um, so I think that's a simple way to, you know, convey the the time is passing and, um, you know, break up the, the story. Um, it fits with. Yeah, it fits, as you say, with the fact that it's adapted from a children's book, it fits with the whole diorama nature of it in general. Um, it's not something I really even thought that much about when I was watching the movie, just because maybe because I've come to expect it from Wes Anderson or just, you know, kind of see it as one of his tropes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, it works for me as well. And I, I think the last thing before we do start to think about wrapping things up here is just maybe talk about more of the mechanical parts of the plot in terms of the heist nature. It is ultimately, you know, it's maybe not necessarily billed as a heist film, but there's certainly several heists that take place in the film and i think it's it can and it, it for some people it may even live and die by the whether how effective those heists are there's obviously that the sort of tripartite heist at the beginning 
you know, followed by the, I don't know, revenge, revenge heist. I don't know what you call it. And then trying to extract um, Christofferson as well. So there's almost three different heists that happen in the film. Jay, is there particularly one that you found particularly entertaining or that you gravitate more towards um, uh, in terms of enjoyment or quality? What did you think? Sure. I would say it was the heist they did uh, at Bunce's. Um, I sure. specifically wrote that down as something I the wanted turkeys. to call out. Whatever. Just, there's, yeah. he's, you know, Buzz is just sitting there like reading his paper and there are five security cameras behind him and you see them, you know, enter on panel one, walk yeah. through on panel two. They like put their faces up in front of the camera on panel three and four they steal. And I think on five you see uh, the dog just get like trapped in the crate. And yeah, I, I mean, it's funny, you know, I hear you, I hear you and understand why you're describing them as heists. I like, like, in their most literal sense, they're heists, but because they're so quick, they're silly. And... They're vignettes almost. They're very sure, silly yeah. Vignettes. So, yeah. you know, I'm like they worked for me, but I almost didn't think of them as like heists. I'm just like yeah. they, they were like plot device heists, where they're kind of just like pushing the story along more so than like this is a set piece now where we're gonna like build all this tension and see if they can get away with this thing. It's like the the first two are that way, but I feel like the the last one is definitely a set piece. Sure, when they're uh, rescuing Christopherson. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. No, that 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 one I would categorize as, in, again, in my mind, my very limited mind, like you know, more of a, like when it comes to heist movies, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> more of a classic heist, uh, one that works again, packs a little bit of like a an emotional punch as you're seeing them go through the motions and oh, should I hand myself over and uh, yeah. I mean, some sort of expert extraction skills by Ash, just knocking the milk cartons over and breaking right. at the bottom. Um, he definitely got that lock. Oh, yeah. Scott, what about you? What did you think of the heists? Yeah, they're really fun. I mean, I see them mostly as a way to just, like, show off the animation style because I think sure. that's probably where it's at its best is, you know, with the quick movement and um, the the way that the characters can move, you know, kind of acrobatically in a way. Um, it makes it fun and engaging to watch. Like, again, the, the whole, the plot of the movie is just not of that much interest to me, like other than, you know, insofar as it um, deals with like the central family dynamic and the, the overall themes, but like the, you know, the heists and all that stuff or whatever, they're, they're just kind of there. They're just kind of window dressing, like you said, but they're, they're fun to, to watch. And, uh, yeah, I, mean, I like, yeah. Yeah, I like the when they go to the cider place and they confront Rat for the first time. I was um, about to bring, I was about to bring up Willem Dafoe. You, Scott, you said yeah. that the supporting cast couldn't cook in this film, but I think Willem Dafoe was cooking in this movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, Willem Dafoe is a rat. Like, yeah, I, I, uh, I think that's pretty spot on. Uh, and and no notes. I hate rats, so and and mice and rodents of any type. So, um, you know, casting aspersions on rats is always going to get a a plus from me so um so that was fine but yeah it, it's all it's all a lot of fun again the, the high stuff is really fun um and um a, a great way to show off his skills with the animation i mean i think stop motion animation is one of the you know more dynamic animation styles um and this certainly makes full use of it the the sort of the the switchblade snapping combination of of rat is just I don't know something about it is really really funny. He's like uh, an old western villain almost in a way. Yeah, I think like oh, this maybe this is like yeah it it feels like he's got he's got something going on. I'll just put it that way, I guess. Jay, what did what did you think of of rat of Willem Dafoe? You look like you wanted to say something. I was just chuckling. Reminiscing, surprising he hadn't surprised he hadn't come up until this point. Although I guess I hadn't thought to bring him up either, but he was wildly entertaining. Uh, I couldn't convince my partner that that was actually Willem Dafoe. Just like, yeah, I was like, that sounds so much like him. What are you talking about? But yeah, you're talking about that's Green Goblin. Come on, uh, wow, no, it's the dude from the lighthouse, man. Come on, um, sure, whatever, (laughs) whatever reference point you're using, that's fine. (laughs) He he was super entertaining, though, and I think the old Western villain analogy is perfect. I think I had the same thought while watching. Yeah, what Western villain brought a switchblade to the fight, though? What was he thinking? Yeah, that's 
That's fair. I, I like, you know, speaking about the heist, I just like, like, the build-up to the final heist. Like, again, the sure. speeches that Mr. Fox has in this movie are, like, some of the best parts. Like, the speech that he has there at the the table, you know, with all of them and, like, affirming everyone's different roles, um, sort of, you know, the the uniqueness uh, of the everyone's background there and the fact that, you know, they're all sort of playing a part in this whole enterprise um, and have become a family of sorts. I thought that was great. And again, they, they carry that thread through to the ending. Um, I, I like loved the, towards the end when, yeah. you know, after everything's been resolved and like, you see that they've now like formed their new habitat, whatever you want to call it. And the camera just kind of, again, it's a kind of a classic Wes Anderson technique, but you know, it's panning through all the different sort of like areas yeah. in the, the new, habitat and you know where everyone is sort of using their own skills and using their own um background and experience to like you know create some sort of important part of this like new society that they have created down there um so i thought that that was you know great visual um storytelling but also you know fits fits along with the the core themes about you know the sort of in some regards like affirming the wildness uh to some extent of everyone like aff affirming that you know different side that's within everyone but also you know the importance of family um and the way that those two things can sort of coalesce and coexist yeah totally I mean, it's almost a thing that i wish that they'd leaned or maybe been a little bit more explicit about in the first half of the film as well there's moments where it comes up and you can tell that mr fox is not someone who's really thinking too much about the community I think would be the way that I would describe it. But that, like, to your point, yeah, the speech at the end, the the final, you know, the final scene or, or so, it's something that really sort of underlines and emphasizes that he does care or, and that he has changed in his arc. And to reference the wild animal point, I think one of the things that we sort of, it's gone unspoken, but I think is maybe something obvious and we should just say it is that there's obviously a huge comparison in the film about himself describing as being a wild animal but Mr. Bean, who's driving all this, you know, destruction and chaos, trying to kill all these animals, is in his own way is you know just as much a wild animal, if not more so, than yeah. Mr. Fox. And you know, Mr. Fox is able to maybe find his humanity, to find his community, and support them. But that's not something that Mr. Bean is able to do. And I and I think that's obviously like sort of a, a huge underpinning of the themes of the film. Jay, I guess before we do in a wrap up phase here, any last thoughts on on those more thematic elements of the movie? Yeah, I think as I've been. I've been saying, and as you guys have been saying, you know, you know, West does a good job tackling some of these just like deeper themes. Uh, I, I mentioned the the element of greed before, and I think it, it kind of ties into this wild animal bit, right? It's like you do, you have Mr. Fox saying like, you know, I'm a wild animal, but you totally see it on the other side. Again, you know, Mr. Yeah. Fox's greed is, you know, to some extent, like what is dooming him, everyone in the community, you know, it's beans greed right like again to some extent there are like you know multiple uh, emotions at play here but it's that greed that you know is like driving the community to such extreme lengths and like causing all these headaches and ultimately you know like what he ends up losing and what the animals end up gaining because they're able to find that so yeah i mean i think you know not i mean just like well put pointing that out that you know the animals are able to find that and we see that the the humans are like not able to find, you know, what we would call like that humanity. The real greed is the humans we met along the way. All right, guys, wrap up phase. Favorite scene or moment from Fantastic Mr. Fox? We Fox haven't mentioned it yet. We got through the whole thing without mentioning it. Definitely my favorite scene in the movie is that about halfway through, we have Petey, voiced by the great Jarvis Cocker who just stops the, the plot of the movie to do a little banjo, you know, strumming song about what is going on, basically, about, you know, the sort of plight of the current protagonists. And we learn that it's an improvised song, and, and Bean, in fact, comes in and is berating him for his, you know, sloppy songwriting or whatever. But um, personally, I think that every film should just have a, a little interlude halfway through where... Jarvis Cocker sings a song about what is going on. Um, that was a delightful surprise that I had absolutely no memory of 
uh, from the first time I saw the movie. Also, I'm not sure if I knew who Jarvis Cocker was when well, I was That's, a, that's what I was going to say. I was like, yeah. there's no way you knew who Jarvis Cocker was. Well, I mean, Com- Common People has been one of my favorite songs for a long time, and Different Class has been one of my favorite albums for a long time. Maybe not when I was four, quite when I was 14, but um, yeah, I definitely never never processed that, processed that until I watched this movie. Just as I, I never processed also that he shows up in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire until I watched that movie like a year or two ago. Um, and he, he performs at, I think it's the, the Yule Ball, right? Yeah, that, that one has the Yule Ball in it, I believe. Yeah, well, yeah. he's the front man of the, the band. So who knows what we are going to discover as I continue to watch movies um, that I have never seen or haven't seen in a long time. Maybe Jarvis Cocker has a whole filmography, but it's always wonderful to see him pop up and stuff. Jay, what about you? I think I'll go with uh, this. Also, hasn't come up, although I don't, I don't know, I don't see why it would, but I really did enjoy it. Is Owen Wilson as Coach uh, Skip explaining why? <laughs> yes. I did. No. I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. uh, that was fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I literally crazy game. I wa- <laughs> I watched that scene and I and I literally I I rewound and watched it again. I was like, this is so funny. Oh my god, I'm sorry. Definitely a better invented game than like the the double football or whatever that they have in Top Gun Maverick where you don't wow, understand what's going random on. stray bullet t- Top yeah, Gun Maverick what, what are you doing oh yeah you know I, Oscar, hate, Oscar I hate Top Gun Maverick film. though yeah <laughs> Top Gun Maverick you, you know I have to drag it every I thought I, I thought I thought you were going to talk about movie. I thought you were going to talk about Quidditch for a second I thought you were going to I thought that's where he was going too I'm like oh don't do this man but he oh, went even I'm sorry for stealing your Scott. I could have just gone with the Bunce heist, but no, it's okay. I already talked about it, so I went with this. But that was just hilarious. I have a whole tab pulled up on my computer to talk about Whackbat um, as the <laughs> fictional sport and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, yeah, Owen Wilson's cameo is great. I think he briefly also appears in another scene as well, but his sort of like, it's not just his, his description is the best part, uh, but also his like, coaching of ash as well it's just so funny he's just like well you're certainly not getting worse yeah <laughs> sport or whatever um yeah i love, I love that thing that was so good more of that please more, more more random owen wilson cameos explaining sports that i don't understand please and then then like drawings on the screen while he's describing it as well excellent no notes out of 10 scott what are you giving fantastic mr fox 8.5. It's a great time. Um, it might be a little slight compared to some of, you know, again, my absolute favorites, but um, definitely much higher on it now than I was the first time I saw it. It's a lot of fun, but it also does have a heart to it that in the end connected with me and uh, a great grocery store dance sequence at the end. You can never go wrong with that. Sure. Jay, what about you? I came in just a couple hairs lower at 83 Really fun, has a heart, like Scott said, uh, and you know you can't you can't go wrong with all it did in eighty minutes. Like, yeah, highly highly watchable, enjoyable. You know, packs a good moment there at the end. Scott's got a recommendation for you if you're looking for sub eighty minute movies. I think he's got one or two for you. Mm, I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll um, talk. Yeah, yeah, that would be great if you if you watch the film that I'm referring to. Uh, yeah. that would be that would be amazing. Do, do our viewers not deserve to know, or listeners rather? I think uh, I it's think a that... French film that goes by the title Petite Maman. It is only 72 minutes long. I'm not sure it's something that uh, Jay would normally watch, but hey, at 72 minutes, maybe he will give it a chance. It's you can't get too mad at a 72 minute movie. My second uh-huh. favorite film of 2022. And my 11th or 12th favorite movie of 2021. <laughs> That's a nice juxtaposition. Um, I saw it. Release date discourse. Yeah, I, I saw it at a film festival and Scott watched it when it actually was released wide the following year. Um, regardless, I am giving, I'm actually on the same page as Scott here, 8.5. The slight description, you know, I, I almost I almost disagree with that. I think it's not slight um, by the end, but I, I think that it takes its time getting there, which is maybe maybe what you're referring to Scott. Cause I think the first half is a little bit, a little bit light on theme and more on, Oh, here's all this cool stuff that I'm doing with stop motion animation. Nothing wrong with that. I just think that's a little bit slower to invest in, in in that way, but it did enough to get me invested in the characters and certainly ready for all the payoffs that happened in the second act. A really, a real joy of a film. You know, I, I'd seen about half of Wes Anderson's movies before we started this. 
this is sort of the last one we're covering that I hadn't seen before. And I'm pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoy it. And I would expect this to be in the top half of the movies for me. And I think with that, unless people have anything else to talk about, well, that will conclude our discussion of Fantastic Mr. Fox and part six of the Anderson Countdown. Don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon at www.patreon.com slash pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, etc. So we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Wes Anderson's fantastic Mr. Fox. We'll be back next week with a return to live action and part seven of our Anderson countdown when we'll be revisiting Moonrise Kingdom. We hope you'll join us then. But until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.